Welcome, everybody, to Innovating Church, the Church Innovations podcast. I'm Casey Sugden, here with Rachel Stout and Pat Kiefert. Today, we are interviewing Brian McLaren, former pastor and author, about his new book, Faith After Doubt, uh, which explores the relationship of faith and doubt. Pat, could you offer us a word of prayer, please? Lord be with you all. Also with you. Let's pray. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might attend to one another, listen deeply and with care, and be guided uh, in insight by the power of your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, I said this in our time before, but I just wanted to uh, thank Brian for earlier books he's written. He, um, I had told him I read A Generous Orthodoxy while I was on internship, and it had a profound effect on me. And so, uh, and once again, Faith After Doubt, uh, just it, it has given me so much to think about. And so I'm wondering, Brian, if you would um, talk to us about doubt. Um, because I think for so many people, at least in my experience, doubt is seen as a closed door. Um, mm -hmm. And it really isn't that. Yes. Well, it's, you know, so many of us, I think, grew up in settings where uh, what Christianity was primarily to us was a set of statements that we had to affirm. And so then when we feel that we're doubting any one of those statements, we feel we're getting in big trouble with God and we're in trouble with our church and our pastor. Um, and, but one of the great problems uh, with that understanding of what faith is, is then it means that in a sense, from a very young age, you have to have all of the answers you're ever going to have, and you're not allowed to rethink any of them. Um, so what, what I'd like to suggest is that curiosity is part of what it means to be human and the ability to think for oneself and, and, uh, and, and think with groups, but also think with multiple groups. Uh, that challenges us then to say, well, I'm not sure about that statement that I was told to believe. And I think what happens for a lot of us if we grow up with this idea of faith as primarily being lodged in statements is that eventually we, we might, you know, unscrew one little doctrine and then uh, say, I, I doubt that, I don't believe that anymore. And then we screw a, a, a slightly adjusted one into its place. But eventually I think we come to a deeper kind of doubt that says, is this really what faith is supposed to be? Is faith supposed to be something that's just about adherence to statements, beliefs, or is faith, is there a deeper dimension to faith? And I think it's actually doubt becomes kind of a, a portal to those deeper connections with, with what faith really is. I'm just thinking, as Pat began with a, a, our time with that prayer, the sense that there is an experience and a participation with the, the Holy Spirit, with the spirit and presence, vitality of God among us. And, if, and in some ways, it takes, for many of us, depending on our setting, it takes some experiences of doubt, of belief, of faith just as a set of beliefs to ever even get down to that more experiential level. Uh, so I like, uh, Frederick Beekner used to say that doubt is the ants of the pants in faith that keeps it 
from becoming stagnant. And, and I like to think of doubt as a kind of doorway that takes us from one stage of faith to another. So how do you, how do you begin to have those conversations? Um, you, you tell a bit of your own story in the book. Um, but I guess I'm curious as to sort of how do you, how do you begin or how do you continue um, those kinds of conversations? Um, and, and then I'm wondering too, so how do we normalize doubt? Um, I love the Beekner quote, by the way, and, and it's so true. Um, but how do we normal, I, I, I want to be able to normalize it for people. Um, yeah, you know, I think there are very, very few people who don't have doubts. I think there are a lot more people who don't admit they have doubts. And so I think one of the things that, especially those of us who are in leadership in some way can do, is to just be honest about our own questions and doubts. Um, uh, I, I think of, uh, I tell a story in the book. I was probably 22, 21 years old, very eager to prove how knowledgeable and passionate and zealous I was in my faith. And I was at this dinner table with a somewhat well-known theologian and I was doing my best to impress him, you know. And I remember he just out of the blue said something like, I knew a lot more when I was your age than I know now. <laughs> And I think it was his gentle way of saying to me, you don't have to keep trying to impress me. I'm not in that game anymore. And I was very disturbed by what he said, because I thought that's what Christianity is about, is knowing more. And, and, and I was in, in that zone of, you know, gaining more and more knowledge. Um, but he was happy to say, I, I know a lot less. In, in, in a way, what he did is normalized for me, unknowing. And, uh, I think there's something, I think there's something of great value in that. I'd love to know what you all think about that, though. How do you think we help people, uh, in a sense, come out of the closet about their questions so that they don't have to pretend? I am, um, I guess I would agree uh, with you, Brian, that, um, there's probably a lot of people that are going through it in that uh, pastors or uh, lay leaders in churches uh, just being honest, um, you know, that uh, we are not the people that have faith for uh, other people, but help guide people through a life of faith is probably uh, the best way to do that. And to talk about, um, Similarly, uh, that doubt is not the antithesis to faith. I have heard that so many times throughout uh, just my life as a parishioner and even um, in college religion courses and seminary and from parishioners. And I think that that is one of the most toxic uh, false paradigms I have ever heard. Um, I guess, uh, what, what I would ask is then, um, you know, how could our listeners who maybe aren't faith leaders or are, uh, invite people into conversations about this or, um, 
you know, start out this seemingly awkward conversation. How would we break the ice, do you mean? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know your all's experience, but in my years as a pastor, I constantly had people coming to me with their faith problems and with their questions. And so they seemed, if they knew there was a safe place they could go in private, um, they, they needed that, you know, and some, some folks, they don't find that in their pastor. And so they find a spiritual director or, or they, they look for some place. I think some people go to seminary. They, they don't, they don't want to, um, they're not maybe planning to be a pastor, but they think seminary is a place where you can ask intelligent questions and be in intelligent conversation about the faith. So, um, uh, I, I found that breaking the ice wasn't so big a problem, uh, uh, but maybe that's because I tried to be open with my congregation. You know, I, I had this, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm embarrassed uh, to have to admit this, but I, I had this moment in my years as a pastor where I think I, 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 I heard somebody say one simple sentence that diagnosed my problem so perfectly. He said, you can't be a model of perfection so you should be a model of growth. <laughs> um, and I think when I heard that sentence, I thought that's why I'm beating myself up so much. I'm trying so hard to be a model of perfection. Um, and instead, and of course we would think with an understanding of grace at the core of our theology, we would all get that, but I, I didn't get it as much as I did. After hearing that statement and feeling I was being given permission to say, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to model someone who's growing. And so then, uh, you know, I think that gave me permission to be more honest. I used to think this. Now I think this. I used to be sure of that. I'm not so sure anymore. Um, I know some people see it only this way. I see there are three or four different ways it might be, and I'm not really sure which it is. It, it's that, in a sense, becoming comfortable without having to have everything nailed down uh, perfectly. And I think we'd be surprised how many clergy give that impression week by week and how many people think that's what they're supposed to do as well. So can we talk about, so just about every year after Easter Sunday, um, and I only know this because I'm looking ahead towards Holy Week and doing all of that sort of preparation, but we hear the story of Thomas. And, and he's doubting Thomas in scripture. He's doubting Thomas and he's, he's, we make him into kind of a villain, not, and maybe a villain isn't the right word, but someone that we shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times in my youth and young adulthood, I heard sermons about sort of like, this is not the kind of Christian you should be. But yet, yeah. you know, if you follow Thomas's career, like, I mean, he didn't do too bad for someone who doubted. Yes. Um, and, and he, and he really, I mean, anyways, but, but I'm guessing I'm, I'm, what I'm wondering is, is so how do we approach stories like that? This is, it's a very familiar story. And, and to those who are in the pews on that low Sunday after Easter, <laughs> it's very familiar to them. Yes. So how do we talk about Thomas? Yeah and and doubt yes well you know I, i'm just thinking off the top of my head this year if i were preaching 
about Thomas. Um, I might preach about how uh, th that the real enemy to faith isn't doubt. It's pretending that you don't have doubts. Um, that pretense and is, is the real, is a greater enemy. So Thomas is, he doesn't hide his doubts. In fact, in one of the earlier stories in the Gospel of John, doesn't he say something like, well, let's all go to Jerusalem with Jesus and we're all going to get killed or something, you know? Uh, in other words, he, he has a bit of a, uh, a morose outlook. Like he, he's not a sunny, optimistic guy that everything's going to turn out. He's sort of expecting the worst. Um, and so he's, uh, he, to me, represents not some evil doubter, but somebody who's saying, look, I'm not going to jump to the hope side of the equation uh, until I have, you know, until, in other words, that's, I'm just not going to jump there because you tell me I should. Um, and so what does he say? I will not believe unless he doesn't say I will not believe under any circumstances. I will not believe. And what's so interesting is he's granted what he he, his demand is, you know, he's, he's given the opportunity and he's given an experience that uh, of an encounter with the risen Christ that, that uh, gets him beyond that position. And, um, you know, Jesus doesn't say, cursed are you, Thomas, because you doubted. He says, well, blessed are you. You've seen and believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. So it's, it's kind of like blessing for everybody, wherever you are. If you're a doubter, you're blessed. If you're not a doubter, you're blessed. I think of that passage where Jesus sends the disciples out a passage that I know Pat and I have spent a lot of time just uh, uh, dwelling in, uh, where, uh, you know, Jesus sends the disciples out city to city. And if they listen, they get the blessing of the gospel. And if they won't listen, they leave town and they say, the kingdom of God has come near you as well. Even though you're not ready for it, it's there. And that sense of gracious blessing, I think, is what I would want to spread for Thomas. So, Brian, the, uh, the first handful of chapters um, of your book uh, define or talk about doubt as blank. And um, before I ask my question, I just want to give a, a shameless plug. You mentioned in here that uh, you were thinking about being a literature teacher, and I can tell by the quotes you chose that I would have very much enjoyed you as a literature teacher. You, you have some fantastic quotes. Uh, it leads off with, uh, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith, which <laughs> yeah. uh, I particularly appreciate. Um, but can you talk a little bit about uh, how doubt may come about or yeah. doubt may manifest? Yeah. So, you know, as I was working on this book, um, Casey, I, I, I felt that it was important to, in a sense, help people feel safe, just as we've been saying, to, to talk about their doubt, and in that way, to talk about the pain of it. So I, I don't want to violate any confidences, but just the other night, I was on a phone call, or a Zoom call, with 50 or 60 young Mormons who um, had read the book, and they formed a little group, and they asked me if I'd come and talk with them. And they were having doubts about some Mormon doctrines. And as I heard them talk, one was saying, if I were to speak, if I were to tell the truth about some of my doubts, I would be kicked out of my family. I would be kicked out of my church. My children go to a Mormon majority school. I wouldn't be able to have my children go to that school. I'm not sure if I would still be able to work at my place of employment. 
I might have to move to another state and start a whole new life. In other words, they were talking about the level of cost to them for ever going public with one of their doubts. Um, now, look, I never had anything quite that intense, but I remember being a boy. I loved science as a kid, and I, uh, and I read all the books in the library about plants and animals. And, of course, I learned about evolution. And I grew up in a church where they, I remember clearly when my Sunday school teacher said, I must have raised my hand and asked the question about evolution. Maybe we were reading Genesis 1 or something. And he said, oh, you have to make a choice. You either believe in God or you believe in evolution. And I just remember thinking, is that true? Then uh, I guess in four or five years, I'm out of here, you know. But then I, I made, I had some very deep spiritual experiences. And I, I remember saying, I know my church doesn't believe in evolution, but I'm going to have this little secret that I actually think it's true, and I don't interpret the book of Genesis the way they do, and I'm going to get on with my life anyway. And, and, and so I was keeping that little secret. There are so many people who are keeping secrets like that. You know, they go to a church that says you can't accept gay people. Well, their sister is gay or their brother's gay or they're gay, and they just know that that accounting of gay people isn't something they can abide by. Um, and, and then doubts go to all kinds of deeper levels where I'll just tell you so many people, including many clergy, hear the traditional ways we speak about God as a big white guy in the sky. And they just think, I, I can't abide by that anymore. Or they hear views of God's relation to the universe that seem where God is like the chess master moving all the pieces. And, and they just think that doesn't ring true to me. And so they wonder if they can even believe in God anymore because this package definition they were given no longer seems to fit. And so I just think, grow, you know, having experience in life, reading, learning, uh, it puts us up to uh, points of tension and conflict with what the religious, religious authority figures in our lives tell us. And many people have never given per, been given permission to challenge what they're told by other people. And that creates shame and it creates fear and it creates psychological distress and pain. And as mm. this, this conversation the other night made clear, it puts people in situations where their religion feels like an oppressor. Um, so interesting, right before I was on a call with those, that Mormon group, I was on a call with a, a, a secular uh, someone who identifies as an atheist and humanist. And he happens to be a college chaplain. He's a, a humanist chaplain. And he just said to me, 100% of the students who come to me feel that they're being oppressed by their religion. Now, obviously, he has a self-selecting group, but there's a lot of people who feel this kind of thought policing going on from religious authorities. And yeah, it's painful and scary. And it doesn't feel like liberation or it doesn't feel like good news. So what's the role then of, of not just the, the pastor or, or who's, who's ever happens to be um, in sort of the religious leader at that, but the church, yeah. when we think about the, the wider church, what's the wider church's role then in all of this? Yes. You know, here's where if the leaders can create a spirit, an environment of grace where it's okay for people to be honest, um, and then the church can adopt that. Now, that takes some work. It takes some work. 
it's funny, Rachel, the story comes to my mind uh, from my years as a pastor. We, we had a, for a while, we had a drama ministry and, um, and uh, we, people loved it. And these folks did great work. And it was not every Sunday, but often part of our, our, our liturgical life would be to have someone dramatize a story that uh, engaged with a theme from the scripture for that day. And uh, I didn't know this, but it turns out a woman had started coming to the church who uh, was uh, an atheist. She, um, she was invited by a friend and she loved to act. She was a really good actor. And so she got involved in the drama ministry. So everybody in the church knew this woman because she was such a great actor and she was in front of everybody. And then she um, came to me one day and said, you're aware that I'm an atheist, right? I don't believe any of this. And, um, and she said, um, but I love being part of this church. And, and here's what she said to me, I'll never forget. If I ever do believe in God, it'll be because of the kind of love that I'm experiencing here in this church. So um, I, I said to her, I wonder if you would just share about your story and your experience on a Sunday. So I brought her up and she told her story about, you know, she grew up, her family was atheist. She'd always been atheist, never even thought of going to a church until another guy who was in the drama group invited her. And he met her because they did community theater together. And, and what was so interesting is I had a bunch of people really upset with me that we were allowing an atheist to, you know, feel, feel comfortable in our congregation. But they worked it through and we got to a better place. Well, what happened after that was that it just felt like that was like breaking the sound barrier, that we, we sort of demonstrated that a person could be loved who, who, uh, who didn't uh, subscribe to uh, even some of our most central beliefs. Um, and, and the sentence that she shared that I just thought was so powerful was, yeah, I don't believe now, but if I ever do, it'll be because of the love of these people. And that's what I think, uh, I think congregations need to see, you know, that, that's, that's this mark that people are looking for. Um. One of your uh, chapters uh, a little bit further on in the book uh, turns the conversation from kind of this idea of personal doubt uh, to, I believe even the title was a world in doubt. And uh, we've touched on it with some of your comments so far, but uh, can you speak a little bit sure. to either culture or post-modernity or um, you mentioned kind of old church uh, tropes or stances that have led us here? Can you paint a picture of the corporate doubt for sure. us? <clears throat> sure. So yeah, I, that, that chapter is called The Civilization in Doubt. And I can, use, I can use my own experience. So I, I'm old enough that I grew up, uh, you know, in the days of black and white television when there were four channels. If you really had a good TV, there were five. And on Saturday mornings, there were uh, all these black and white TV sh serialized shows. One of them was The Lone Ranger. And uh, I grew up watching The Lone Ranger every Saturday morning, which was uh, a, a, a white guy with his Indian sidekick, who who's, was called Tonto, which, you know, unsurprisingly means stupid. And, uh, and, and, uh, but it created this sort of power dynamic between uh, a white guy with a mask and, uh, uh, and a Native American. Um, and 
you know, when you grow up a white kid in the suburbs in the East Coast and you don't meet many Native Americans, that's how you get your ideas. They just filter into you from your culture. And then I remember I was in college and a book came out called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which was the first time I'd been exposed to a telling of American history from the perspective of the Native Americans. And so suddenly I had to go back and all of these assumptions that I had, I had to doubt. And of course, the same thing happened for me as a white kid growing up. Uh, I, I remember going into a restaurant as a boy where there was a sign that said, uh, said white only and seeing bathrooms that said colored only. Um, so, uh, you know, you grow up and you accept what you're given by your culture, but then things happen and times change and you have to doubt some of those cultural assumptions. Um, I, I, I'll give you an example. My, my grandfather was a white supremacist. I remember he was a preacher and he would preach the story of Noah and uh, one of the stories of Noah uh, that it deals with something called the curse of Ham, which wasn't the curse of pork products. It was the curse of a son of Noah named Ham that was used by white supremacists to justify slavery and justify white supremacy. And, and there are a lot of people my age and older who remember hearing those kinds of sermons. Um, and uh, so that was my grandfather. Um, my dad was totally different. My dad was the first person to you know, cross racial lines. He, he was so different. And when he was older, he was probably in his early 80s. I, we were taking a walk once and I said, Dad, you're so different about race than your father. What brought about the change? And I thought he might say he had some spiritual insight or heard, you know, something from scripture, maybe from the book of Revelation about people of all tribes and nations gathering as equals before uh, the God's throne and so on. But no, he said what changed him was going in the military. And he said when he was in the military, he was in the Korean War, he worked side by side with people of all races. And he realized that what he had been taught by his father was not true. So whenever change like that happens, it involves a kind of doubt. It involves us having the courage to doubt the norms that we were given, even by people we respected and trusted. Um, and, and, you know, when you have that in mind and you read the Gospels, you suddenly see, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you realize, I think he says that five times in, in, in a row, you realize that in a sense, Jesus is saying, I'm asking you to doubt conventional wisdom. I'm asking you to doubt conventional interpretations of, of our scriptures. I'm offering you a different way to think here. And in fact, I'm inviting you to repent, which means rethink, which means give things a second thought, which involves a kind of doubt. So I, I, I think that's, if we believe that the spirit is guiding us and leading us farther, then we'd have to say that's going to involve having the courage to question some of the things that we inherited. We don't do it hatefully or arrogantly, but I think we just say it's in a certain sense, it's the job of each generation to determine what from the rich tradition and heritage that they received, what they want to carry on and pass on to their children and what they want to put by the wayside. And I'm so glad my dad put the racial instruction that he'd been given uh, by the wayside. Um, in, in your book and at the end, you, you have this great sort of appendix that um, 
gives us a picture of this, but you talk about the various stages of faith. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could um, break that down for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you're, uh, I enjoyed that as a visual person, that, yeah. that chart, yes. that was, that was awesome. So thank you for that. Well, but if Rachel, you could just break that down for our listeners. Sure. Well, you're making me feel good because I remember my editors said, do you really need that chart in there? <laughs> I said, I think that helps some people. It helps me. I'm like, you know, I'm a visual learner. Well, the first thing I always want to say is I think any stage theory needs to be taken with, you know, some tenderness. Uh, it's a tool that can be useful, but like any tool, it can be abused. And, and reality is way more complicated than anybody's stage theory. And then the second thing I'd want to say is that there have been so many wonderful stage theorists I mean, obviously, even in the scriptures, we hear Paul saying, when I was a child, I thought like a child and spoke like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became mature, I put away childish things. So, he, you know, there's that kind of stage theory even uh, in, in the scriptures. Um, and and, and there have been, going back to Søren Kierkegaard and William Blake, all the way up to uh, Ken Wilber and others in the present, any number of stage theories. I tried to integrate them, and uh, I uh, offer a four-stage theory. It's very simple. Uh, people can easily remember it. It's simplicity, complexity, perplexity, harmony. Um, so you think of it as the first three stages go from simplicity um, the, the world of easy answers, when we believe what our authority figures tell us, because we have no choice that they know and we don't when we're five years old or eight years old, we don't know what foods are poison and what foods are, you know, what, what things are nourishing. We don't know where it's safe and where it's dangerous. We don't know which people we can trust and which people are a threat to us. So we trust our authority figures in simplicity. And then comes complexity where we realize other people have different authority figures, and we figure out how are we going to navigate a more complex world where different groups seem to operate by different sets of rules. And then uh, comes a third stage of perplexity. This might be the deeper, er deepest areas of doubt where we um, we start questioning whole institutions, and we and that's where these kinds of questions about our civilization even come. Uh, and we start having questions about justice as well as truth and uh, and that often is a deeply unsettling time. And, and I think many people stay in stage one their whole lives. Some people stay in stage two their whole lives. Some people get to stage three and they don't know that there's any place else to go. Many of them leave the church at that point. But I think in our tradition, we have rich uh, examples of people who go through that deep period of doubt, but they come through with a kind of humbled faith that is broader and more comfortable with mystery and um, it's not a lazy faith that doesn't think, but it's a faith that has thought so much that it knows that reality will always be beyond the grasp of uh, our uh, words and, and, and thoughts. So those four stages. And then I think that, that fourth stage becomes a new simplicity uh, after a while, which will be followed by a new complexity and a new perplexity. And we probably, you know, go through that kind of spiral. So I, I see it not like stages like you go from one train car to an, another but i see it more like rings on a tree where each ring builds on the capacities of the previous ring and um and creates a pattern of, of growth brian uh, um... i really appreciate this uh, conversation tremendously brian and uh, i do think uh, that there's a wonderful book that uh, 
I thought of immediately when I started in on this one uh, by T.H. Uh, Lerman on uh, When God Talks Back. She's this anthropologist and um, uh, sociologist, psychologist uh, at uh, Stanford University who studied uh, a group of people um, who make up uh, what we might call, you and I might call, kind of the neo-Pentecostal yeah. movement. She did a lot of John Wimber's crowd in England as well as in North America. And one of the things she found uh, was that their beginning place was not faith. Their beginning place was doubt. Uh, and on the whole, the assumption of your book is where I would guess all four of us are. Our beginning place was faith, uh, not, not doubt. And yet there's uh, tremendous evidence that there are millions of uh, post-industrial Westerners uh, who, who begin, uh, if you will, their simplicity Yes. beginning place is yes. doubt yes uh and I, I find if i sit and listen uh and it really has nothing to do with the age of the person and uh, to some degree not questions of race in north america i will find a lot of people who have what i would call very simple doubt yes and uh, and that's a very, to me, it's a very interesting place to begin a conversation yeah. when, if you will, their faith in doubt is almost unquestioned. Yes. And you can do that in our culture. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I have wondered, uh, are there, how are the ways that you might listen to a person into a more reflect, uh, reflective, uh, a more complex yeah. relationship with the beginning place of doubt. Yes. Well, first, uh, Pat, I think it, it, that's such an important point. I think it, near the beginning of the book, I say that, uh, according to some recent research, there are about 65 million Americans alive today who grew up in church but no longer attend. Um, and then you think those people are going to have kids and they're going to raise their kids, uh, some of them, without any connection to a faith community. So for those kids, a non-religious assumption is going to be the norm. And all of any of us who travel in Europe, we you know, realize that uh, there are many countries where that's the vast majority of people. Um, and uh, and I, I think... As you say, that we're going to be in a different circumstance with them, um, because in some ways, what what faith might do is it might complexify their life, or what faith might do might be what they turn to in a time of perplexity. Um, in, in other words, they have to get to a point where they doubt they're somewhat, you know, secular, or we might. I I I don't mean this in a judgmental way but they might have inherited a view of the world that's just very flat. Um, life, the, the existence is physics and nothing more. 
And then something happens and they think, I'm not happy with that. I'm not satisfied with that. I don't think that explains everything. And then suddenly their, their entry into faith is going to be at a very different level. One, one of the unfortunate problems for them is if they try to find a faith community, um, very often it's hard for them to find a faith community where they're going to come in at stage two or at stage three or stage four because there just aren't many people who are there. All the conversations are conducted on a sort of religious simplicity level. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you use that word listening and that becomes so important because here is our opportunity to just stop making assumptions about people and become curious about what is their story. And I think that without hearing the story, uh, we will jump to all kinds of conclusions, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Brian. As we uh, finish up today, Brian, I have uh, one final question for you, and it's from uh, your afterward, which I find particularly life-giving, um, especially uh, in my ministry and the way that I try to teach uh, scripture and worldview. Um, but for our listeners, whether pastors, lay people, seekers, uh, wherever they are in whatever station of life, uh, if they're experiencing doubt, uh, are they crazy and are they alone? Yes, that's right. I, I ended that, um, I ended the book with a quote from, from Rachel Held Evans, dear friend and dear human being who uh, passed away actually while I was writing the book. At, a young, at too young an age, but um, Ray, that was what Rachel would say, you're not crazy and you're not alone. Um, and, and I think this is one of the great problems, especially for people who are deeply involved in their churches and they begin to have questions and doubts and they, they, they don't hear other people talking about it. And so they think, what's wrong with me? I'm the only one with this problem. And of course, if they only knew the person behind them on Sunday or in front of them is having uh, deep, deep questions as well. It's funny, just this morning, uh, I was looking on Twitter, and uh, I, I don't know if I'll be able to find it right at this moment, but someone who had just read the book posted um, something like, I thought I was losing my faith. I found out I'm just perplexed, <laughs> and that it's okay to be perplexed. And uh, that, I think, is what we hope can happen for people. Brian, thank you so much for your time today and uh, for your work in this book. Uh, to everybody listening, I can't tell you how much I recommend this as uh, just an essential piece, no matter where you are in your faith journey, no matter where you are in your faith, in your doubts, uh, this is a book that will help you better understand yourself and better understand others. Um, Rachel, would you please close uh, with a word of prayer? Absolutely. The Lord be with you. And also with you. God who walks with us, be with us this day, wherever we are. Accompany us on the journey and hold us fast. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, this has been uh, Innovating Faith or Innovating Church, uh, talking with 
former pastor and current author Brian McLaren on his new book, Faith After Doubt, available wherever books are sold. Uh, I recommend everybody check it out. And until next time, peace be with you.